You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Psalms. We turn to Psalm 22, which more than probably any other psalm in the Psalter is identified also in the New Testament with the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 22. You will notice there is a superscription above this psalm to the director or for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning. We really don't know what that tune sounds like. We'd love to have a recording of it, but we don't. And notice it's also a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the tomb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild ox. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Our text this Good Friday morning comes from the Gospel according to John chapter 19. The second part of verse 16 to the end of verse 24. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide or decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Well, of the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, today is Good Friday. Well, what's so good about this particular Friday? For many people in our increasingly secular society, it's good because this happens to be a public holiday. In other words, you don't have to work and many get paid nevertheless. Now, isn't that good? Of course, as Christians, we know that this explanation completely misses the boat. The fact that this holiday is there doesn't make it good. 
No, what makes it good is the fact that together we may remember and even, although perhaps between quotation marks, celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. For on this day we remember that he suffered in our place, that he took upon himself all of our sins, that he paid for them in an extreme fashion that he removed them as far as the east is from the west, that he healed the breach between God the Father and us, that he restored, redeemed, and renewed us. And so we could go on and on. For the point is that Good Friday is really, really good for us and the cause of our salvation. But at the same time, we also need to realize, of course, that while this is a Good Friday for us, for the Lord Jesus Christ, you might say, this is a bad, terrible, awful Friday. Yes, and we are reminded of that in every one of the gospel accounts. They all dwell extensively on the fact that our Savior, during his last days of earthly ministry, suffered much. Not one of them ignores the stark and the grisly details. No one covers up the shame and the horror. It's all there. Yes, it's all there so that we might never forget surely what it cost our Savior to make this day truly good for you and for I, for all who believe. So turn with me to the Gospel of John and take note of the crucifixion of our Lord. We're first going to look at what they did to him. Secondly, what they wrote about him. And finally, what they took from him. Well, beloved, notice our text begins with the rather solemn words, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. In other words, this means the trial is over and the matter has pretty much been decided. Pontius Pilate has heard enough. He has felt enough pressure. He sees no other way out, and he decides to hand Jesus over to his troops to be crucified. And of course, in his own fashion, Pontius Pilate had tried to avoid all of this. First, he had tried to get the Jews to put them on trial themselves. But that hadn't worked because they said, we can't do the death penalty. Only you Romans can do that. And second, he had tried to turn Jesus over to Herod when he learned that Jesus came from Galilee, Herod's domain, but that had not exactly worked either. And third, Pilate had assumed that the people would surely choose Barabbas or Jesus over Barabbas. But he underestimated the depths of their hatred and spite. And finally, notice Pilate had resorted to mockery. But even that didn't work. And so he'd run out of options. If he is determined still to rescue Jesus, it will cost him, he realizes, his position, his power, perhaps even his life. And that's just too high a price 
to pay. So Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And now what do we see? We see Jesus, first of all, carrying his own cross. You know, it's hard to say exactly what that looked like. It may have been no more than a cross member or the basic part of the cross. Or it may also have been the whole thing shaped either as a T or an X or a Y. We just don't know. What we do know, however, is that he carried his own cross. But then we also know something else. We know that he had help. Luke tells us that at a certain point, the Roman soldiers took hold of a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene and made him carry the cross for Jesus. It would appear that Jesus was too weak to carry the cross all the way by himself. That the beatings and the scourgings that he had sustained had taken too much out of him. And now John doesn't mention this. John, notice, says nothing about Simon of Cyrene at all. And and this has led some to point the finger at John and to question the reliability of his account. It seems that there are some Bible critics out there lurking in the wings, just hoping to pounce on whatever they think might be an error. But this is no error. I'm sure, beloved, that John knows all about Simon. But he doesn't mention Simon because he wants to lay all the stress here in his account on the activity of Jesus. He wants us to realize that it is Jesus who carries his own cross. That it's Jesus who went out. He wants us to be aware of the fact that our Savior is fully involved in this whole matter of our redemption. He's not a bystander. He's not a helpless victim. Neither is he dragged screaming and kicking to his death. No, of his own accord, he goes out to bear the sins of many. But where does he go to? We're told in verse 17 that he went to what is called the place of the skull. The Aramaic word for skull is Golgotha. The Latin word is Calvary. You can use either name. And the reason why it's called the place of the skull is most likely because when you looked at this place from a certain angle, it, it looked almost like a, the shape of a, of a human skull. In any case, there the procession made up of Jesus, Simon, the soldiers, and the onlookers stopped. They had reached their destination. This was the end of the line, so to speak. Yes, and then there follow the simple but earth-shaking words in our text. Here they crucified him. 
What's so stunning about those words? Well, first, there is the fact that they point to a most awful form of capital punishment. None of the gospel writers tell us exactly or precisely in all of the details how they crucified him, but we know. We know that they would have taken him and thrown him down to the ground. We know that they would have put the cross beam behind his back and stretched out his arms to the right and to the left. And we know that they would have taken out their hammers and their long nails and that they would have forced open his hands and driven the nails through his hands into the beam. And we know that they would have taken his feet and driven another nail or two through them. And we know that finally they would have dug a hole, forced one end of his cross into the hole, and hoisted it up. And that there he hung, suspended, between heaven and earth. There he hung in pain and torment. There he hung high enough for everyone to see him. But there is more, beloved, for he hung there now as someone cursed and damned. When you hung there, your hands couldn't reach up to heaven and claim it. And your feet couldn't touch the earth and claim it either. A crucified man is the symbol of a man who is nowhere. The reason why you hang there suspended is to symbolize the fact that heaven doesn't want you and the earth doesn't want you either. It symbolizes the fact that this man is utterly rejected and isolated and scorned. That he is the scum of the earth. What a punishment. What a sentence. But there is more, for John also tells us, you may have noticed, that Jesus was not crucified alone. He had company. Only he had wicked company. Isaiah says he was numbered with the transgressors. Those were not innocent men beside him. Now the original term indicates they were Hardened criminals, convicted felons, possibly guerrilla fighters or terrorists, with a lot of blood on their hands. And notice the little fact. It says Jesus is in the middle of these two men. He's got a bloody man on his left and a blood causing man on his right. He's right in the middle of all this violence, of all this terror, of all this depravity and blood. And yet he didn't have any blood in his own hands. 
The only blood he had on his hands was his very own blood. He never hurt anyone. He only healed. He never made blood flow. He only stopped the flow of blood. He never touched anyone in anger. But only in love, compassion, and healing. Truly, he didn't deserve to be there. He should never have been crucified. Never, ever. So why was he there? Just another miscarriage of justice? Just another human mistake or a case of revenge? No, it's more than that. It's, it's the will of God. It's the will of God for you and for I and for our redemption. Strictly speaking, beloved, we should have been there. That cross should have been our cross. Those nails should have gone through our hands and our feet. We should have been hanging there in the blazing sun with the catcalls of the spectators ringing in our ears. We deserved all this. We earned it with our sins. But instead he is there for us. And in our place, bearing our burden, carrying our sins, paying our ransom. But yet there is more for not only does John describe what they did to him, John also describes what they wrote about him. It was customary in those days when you were crucified that a notice would be attached to your cross. And on it, the passers-by and the spectators and bystanders could read about the nature of your particular crime. So what do they write about Jesus? Did they write, this man blasphemed God and his holy temple? You remember that had been the charge, a trumped-up charge, but the charge, nevertheless, for executing him. But that's not what it says on that sign. Instead, the Romans wrote, and you can say providentially, unawares, in many respects, they wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And in addition, notice, they write it not in just one language, but in three. Aramaic, the common language of the people. Latin, the language of the army. Greek, the language of the empire. Now you notice too, it didn't take very long for the priests to hear about this particular sign. It would appear that plenty of people walked by the cross. They looked at Jesus. They read the sign. They talked about it and maybe even snickered about it. And the Jewish leaders didn't like all their talk. So they went to Pilate and they asked him for a sign change. And they wanted him to change it to say, this man claims or this man alleges to be the king of the Jews. Now that's not such a big deal. 
We assume that Pilate will cave in when it comes to this particular request as well. Only notice he doesn't. Suddenly he digs in his heels and he exclaims, What I have written, I have written. So what's his problem? Well, his problem is that he has given in to the Jews once too often and he refused to do it again. So the sign offends them. Good. Serves them right after all the embarrassment these Jews have cost me and put me through. You see, he's quite happy to humiliate those who have already managed so much to humiliate him. But notice, beloved, while Pilate and the Jews are feuding among themselves, what they fail to realize is that a higher purpose is being served here. And if you ask in what way, well, perhaps you recall what the Lord Jesus said back in John 12, verse 32. There he, he prophesied, and I think hardly anyone at that time got it, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In other words, already early on, Jesus prophesies that one day his cross is going to act like a kind of magnet. And in one way or another, it will serve to draw all sorts of people to him. And to a saving work. And you know that's precisely what happened. People from many lands walked by the cross and the crucified Lord. They saw him and they read the sign. And they could almost all of them read it because it had been written in all of these three very well-known languages. And so in this way, many from near and far are introduced to Jesus, the King of the Jews. Yes, and that works its magic, so to speak, for over time and after Pentecost, the message of this strange King goes out. It goes out to Jews everywhere. It goes out to Gentiles as well. Why, it's still going out today. Jesus is crowned king on a cross. He's the king of the Jews, but even more, he's the king of the world. He's our king who reigns supreme from a tree. And so John tells us what they did to him. But they wrote about him, and that leaves us one more thing, that is what they took from him. You read that in fairly succinctly in the verses 23 and 24. In those times, all who were crucified and condemned forfeited whatever possessions they had. If you were condemned to be crucified and you had property, it was confiscated. If you had money, it was taken away. And if you had some decent clothes left after the ordeal, those clothes were divided 
among the soldiers. And now, in Jesus' case, apparently there were a few things left. Most likely there was a belt, sandals, a headscarf for covering, and an outer garment. Because it says in our text that each one of the four soldiers got something. Only that left them with a bit of a problem because there's one thing, one last article of clothing left. It was an undergarment. And normally they would have taken that undergarment, they would have ripped it in four pieces, they would each have had a piece, and they would have used those pieces as rags on which to clean swords and do other things. But notice this undergarment is different. It's seamless. It's in one piece. And it would thus be a shame to tear it. So what do they do? They cast lots for it. Interestingly, sometimes in the church people talk about not voting but casting lots as if that's a good thing because that's what we read about in Acts 1. But everybody forgets about the kind of negative casting of lots that you find here in our text. But in any case, they cast lots for it. And one of them ends up with his undergarment. Now that's interesting, but at first sight you might say it's not that interesting. Why does John bother to tell us what they do with the underwear of Jesus? Well, the first reason is obvious. He tells us about this to show us that what happens here is no accident. Rather, this too is part of the plan and the purpose of God. A plan and a purpose, John says, that goes way, way back in history. Already in the Old Testament, King David knew that one day this would happen. He was led by the Holy Spirit to prophesy about it in Psalm 22 with the words, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now it may be that this at a certain juncture happened to David as well. But it's rather obvious from the prophecy that it's going to happen again to David's great son and Lord. You see, beloved, nothing, absolutely nothing in all that is written here happens by chance. And certainly when it comes to the life, the ministry, the suffering, the death of our Savior, nothing at all happens by chance. Our salvation is very much a divine handiwork, a planned work. An intended work. God the Father always knew what he was doing and and going to do. Whether for Jesus or even for us today. Providence and purpose guide our lives. Not luck and chance. The Father guides then And the Father guides still. 
But yet, beloved, what John describes here is more than just a clothing lottery. For what happens at the foot of the cross has huge implications for our Savior. It means that he is now naked. That he hangs there outside Jerusalem as a man without any clothes. All who walk by and see him, see him exposed. He has no covering left. And you need to understand the shame and the horror that this entails. The Jews, and maybe you've discovered that most people in the Middle East are pretty serious about their clothing. It may be hot there, but they still know how to cover up. We know a little about that also today because of this big controversy in Quebec about women wearing burqas and niqabs. Clothing is important to cover yourself. And so what happens here to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is nothing less than a huge humiliation. And indeed, you can say it's one more humiliation in a whole series of humiliations. Leaving heaven behind, that was humiliating. Taking on human form, that was humiliating. Living in Nazareth, that hick town in the north, that was humiliating. Dealing every day with sinful people, that was humiliating. And battling silly little people like Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, that too was humiliating. No matter where he turns, there is humiliation. And now this, this clothing fiasco, and this nakedness, you could say it marks his final humiliation. And it signifies that he has not a shred of decency left to himself. Everything is gone. His name, his reputation, his power, his honor, his self-respect, his dignity, and soon his life. It's all gone. For him, on the cross, there is absolutely nothing left. But, and here's the great irony of Good Friday and Easter. For us, there is an overflowing abundance. Well, what happens? We who deserve to be crucified and who should be the naked ones are clothed. But then we're not clothed in the fashions of Paris, Milan, or New York. We're clothed with the garments of salvation, with the robes of righteousness and the fashions of heaven. Have you never noticed 
that whenever the saints are described in the New Testament, they're always described as being clothed, clothed with the robes of salvation or the garments of redemption, clothed, for example, as they are in the case of Sardis, dressed in white. In the book of Revelation, it says, they are said to be dressed in white with crowns of gold on their head. Later in heaven, they are said to be dressed in clean, shining linen with golden sashes around their chests. Why, even the holy city is all dressed up as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. How come that the people of God and the city of God is so well dressed? How is it that we are promised such a splendid wardrobe? The answer lies here. It lies at the foot of the cross. For there lies his seamless robe. There Christ goes naked so that you and I may be clothed. There Christ is unrobed so that you and I may have the robes of righteousness. There Christ knows shame, bitter shame, so that you and I might one day know the meaning and the blessing of glory. Beloved, it's all for you. He does it all for you and I. And you see, that's what makes this day so really fantastically good for us. He carried the cross for us. He allowed himself to be crucified for us. He was mocked for us. He was naked for us. There is no depth that he did not plumb. There is no valley that he didn't go through. There is no shame that he didn't endure. He became our total sin bear. He was everything for us. So that we who are by nature nothing might become everything for God. Thanks to that Friday long ago, it's good today. And it will be good for all of us who believe in him forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.